Welcome back to Scripps Talks. This is Bob Stewart from the School of Journalism. Today we have Scott Milburn joining us from Columbus. Scott is a graduate from the School of Journalism from back in the day and has worked in political communication for most of his career, but now works in healthcare uh, public relations. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Tell us, tell us what you're doing right now. Thanks, Bob. It is uh, mercifully a sunny Saturday here in um, central Ohio, and I walked about half a block away from my house to a park because my son is mowing the lawn, thank heavens, and I am sitting on bleachers on a decidedly empty soccer field, which otherwise would be full of suburban helicopter parents like myself. Um, Typically would be full of those folks on a Saturday morning in uh, Upper Arlington, but is deserted today except for me and you. Well, it's good to be there. I, I can sort of picture picture that because we're getting used to these new landscapes of places without people. Indeed. I work at Nationwide Children's Hospital, as you have talked about. and I had to go down to the hospital yesterday. It's the first time I've been there for three weeks. And it was a ghost town because all non-urgent procedures have been postponed until further notice. And so a place that is typically busy and babbling with the sound of kids, some running, some rolling, parents you know, doing what parents do with little kids, you know, chasing them and telling them to be quiet, all that was gone. And it was, uh, it was, I guess in some ways for me, aside from empty shelves of toilet paper, it was, it was for me a, a really kind of stark example of the impact that the pandemic is kind of having on our world the roll down there down 315 you know my commute route was a little easier and but yeah getting to work getting to a hospital and having it be almost empty was a big change for me this pandemic mercifully has not targeted children that's right so i'm wondering what what kind of planning and what kind of adaptation other than just putting everything on hold what is children's having to do to prepare for this pandemic as it rolls sure. into Ohio? Not in any particular order. I mean, certainly supplies are an issue, and supplies are an issue because our staff are critically important, right? You can't care for patients and their families without people. Nationwide Children's has 13,000 employees. We need at every turn to make sure those people are safe, they are healthy, they are equipped with the gear they need to care. And so both um, making sure there's enough personal protective equipment, PPE, as we call it, making sure that we have enough, that we have enough into the future, a good stockpile of that stuff, making sure that we have a good line on suppliers, reliable line on suppliers is important, making sure that people have up-to-date information on how to, as we say, don and doff, put on and take off, that PPE is critically important, and then making sure employees know just what's going on. Nishway Children's Hospital is the second busiest pediatric hospital in the country. It's a top 10 U.S. News ranked hospital. We are uh, top 10 NIH funded research center. There's a lot going on 
it's a uh, a place where people want to be because of its um, ability to care, to innovate, and to I mean simply do things that other places either can't or choose not to. So people want to be there, and and they want to be there because they're good, they're smart, and smart people want to know what's going on. Everybody wants to know what's going on. Everybody deserves to know what's going on. And so as someone who works a lot on internal communication, on employee communications, we have dramatically ramped up our efforts to keep employees up to speed, up to the moment, up to speed on the hospital's preparation, on changes in visitor restrictions, changes in policies, procedures, updating them on information about leave. It's complex, right? This is... um, brand new territory for everybody you know 100 year pandemics aren't something that happened more frequently than 100 years by definition and so there is no one at any healthcare facility on the planet who remembers the way we did it last time right there's no playbook on the shelf for this so every effort's being made to make sure employees have what they need to be safe from a gear standpoint and from a knowledge and training standpoint. A lot of work. <laughs> now, your work before you took this job was in straight-up political communication. You worked with Governor Kasich. And I have to believe that as you're you know, watching this as a citizen, you're paying pretty close attention to how our politicians are communicating with their constituents I'd be interested to know what you think about Governor DeWine and how his communication style has has worked. Because he's he's getting a lot of kudos, a lot of acknowledgement. You can take the boy out of public policy, but you can't take the public policy out of the boy. And so, you know, I talk regularly with friends from previous jobs and lives and how they think things are happening on the federal level, on the state level. I will say, thank God for federalism. Okay. Thank God that we have a system in the United States in which governors have incredible power and incredible autonomy. Our system is uncommon on the planet. The fact that Ohio is doing well is a reflection of the fact that states have the ability to, in many ways, call a lot of their own shots, right? There are nine states in this country where governors have yet, as of Today, Saturday, 10.25 a.m., have not yet issued stay-at-home orders, which is irresponsible to the point of impeachable, if you would ask me, frankly. We are not in that situation in this state. Governor DeWine has been aggressive in keeping us all at home and shutting down schools and shutting down places where people might congregate irresponsibly and unsafely. And as a result, I think that Ohio is going to emerge from this relatively less damaged than other places. We have the good fortune of having, as the director of the Department of Health, someone who is a global public health expert. Uh, Dr. Amy Acton's background is in this. For many years, she worked as Ohio State as an instructor and a researcher in global public health. She's informed. She's assertive. She's a mom. She's a teacher. And I think all of those characteristics are just naturally coming out in the way she talks, but also in the way she makes her decisions from an academic standpoint, but also from a parental standpoint. And good leaders 
don't hire anybody dumber than them. Every good leader I've been around knows you got to hire the smartest people and then listen to them. Among the right things that Governor DeWine is doing right now is listening to smart people. Ohio has a strong network of public health entities, um, both at the, at the county level and the city level. Nothing in the public sector is funded to the level that we don't like to be funded. And so let's just agree to that and then put that aside. But at the same time, we have a robust, many-faceted network of public health entities. Here in Franklin County, we have a very robust public health system. The city of Columbus has a robust public health department. This network of independent local public health entities, together with the strong 1,000-person Ohio Department of Health, is... um, I think working very well right now. These are educated, well-trained people. It's a system that Amy Acton understands very well, together with our robust system of county emergency management agencies, which Ohio, again, has a very strong system of emergency management. Governor DeWine is making appropriate use of these resources. He's listening to leaders, and he's doing what he does well, which is just kind of talk plain and straight to people. We should all be grateful for it. You talked about federalism being part of why you know we're in a, the position we're in, but there's been a lot of a lot of criticism of of the president and all of this. I wonder if you have any observations about how the Trump administration is communicating and managing this crisis. I had the privilege of working in the White House for President George W. Bush. And I was the press secretary for the White House Office of Management and Budget during Katrina. I have friends who worked in the Federal Emergency Management Agency. I saw a federal government struggle to get up to speed in response to that, but then eventually find its footing and get to a point where the response became far more organized and supportive. Again, disasters by definition spew chaos. You don't anticipate disasters, but you do prepare for them. And you train, you have a line on supplies, you practice communication. I saw in Katrina a federal government that I think initially struggled to get their hands around things, but then eventually as situational awareness improved, response improved. The reason that that was able to even make the the modest progress that it did over time was because there are experts in place in federal agencies who know what they're doing. And as much as people like to beat on government entities for not knowing what they're doing, well, they're the worst in the world except for every other. They do this job typically well when they're listened to and they're trusted and they're left alone to do it. The challenge we have now is that I think there is a deep suspicion of the apparatus in government that does this frontline work. And you have a lot of top-level political appointees and a lot of openings, unfortunately, but you have a lot of top-level political appointees who are probably newer to the game than in previous federal administrations and probably come from a standpoint of lack of familiarity with government experience. And the lack of familiarity, and I think they're just general ideological vantage point combined to produce a lot of mistrust well that's fine don't trust fema as long as you can go out and do their job yourself 
You can't? Well, maybe you better trust him. Don't trust Dr. Fauci unless you can go out and do his job yourself. Oh, you can't? Well, you better trust him. And so I think that there is increasingly more trust in these frontline advisors and responders coming over time, but initially there wasn't. And I think that initial mistrust and lack of inaction that flowed from it hurt us profoundly. Scott, I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for, for that analysis. I think that's really helpful. But I want to pivot a little bit and talk about School of Journalism uh, and the fact that we have an alum like, like Scott Milburn who works in this very important space. You know, not everybody would imagine a journalism alum being so connected to a process like this or working at a hospital. I mean, the other day I interviewed uh, Eileen Scheel, and she works now for a company that makes ventilators. So journalism alums aren't just out reporting on the news. They're also helping communicate messages and understand, you know, how to communicate with employees like, like you're doing at Children's Hospital. I'd be interested in your thoughts about your training and your background and how that helped prepare you to, to be effective in a moment like this. That's a great question. My first response is, beats me, Bob. For me, what I've always said is it all goes back to writing. Because take it apart, what is writing? Writing is rooted in three things. Something complex that people don't know, a process to translate that into knowable, accessible forms, and then an effort to get that to specific audiences in a way that connects and informs and compels that audience. For me, that's writing. Everyone has different approaches to it, but for me, that's, that's how I've always viewed it. I find that process endlessly fascinating. I mean, I'm just kind of a communication nerd, Bob, because I love the idea of taking stuff that nobody can understand, translating into something that passes through the kind of the cognitive membranes of an audience, and then working with that audience to get them to a place that is better, better for society, better for them, if you're working with a client, better for a client, and all within the context, though, of freedom, right? I mean, people can ignore or disregard or disagree with what you're saying or what you're doing. That process doesn't matter at all outside of the context of, of a free society, a liberal society, because having trying to put things in context that people understand and agree with and compel doesn't matter in a closed society. You just do what you're supposed to do. Who cares if you understand it or like it? Well, that's fortunately that's not the world we live in. Being able to practice that craft of explanation and presenting people with options, which hopefully they find compelling, is, I see, part of what I do as an, as a, as an American, as a, a kind of a practicer of First Amendment and free thought. Being able to do that in a public policy context and government context has always been worthwhile to me because I kind of believe in the nobility of public service and kind of doing my own part just to kind of keep the wheels moving. In America. I know it's kind of a long answer and kind of off, but I mean, I, from a high altitude level, that's kind of how I approach what I've been doing the past 25, 30 years. Graduated in 91. Let's bring the altitude level down just, just a bit. Uh, I, I should have mentioned earlier that you were on the school's advisory board, and in that position, you know, you and several other people are invited periodically, and, and you always have taken the opportunity to, to give me, as the director of the school, advice whenever it seemed important to do that. 
I'm stepping down as director. Uh, there will be a new director. And I, I wonder if you could take a moment to give the school and the faculty and maybe even the student body some advice because there's a lot of soul searching going on right now. The institution has had to kind of reinvent itself. Journalism is facing many, many, many challenges as the economy grinds down and slows down. Um, the graduating seniors obviously are staring into this abyss, wondering, you know, what's out there. What what kind of advice or words of encouragement would you have for for the school and its students? First, I would say, don't worry, exhale, and I would say, the journalism instructional industry should remember that what it does, the fundamental concept of journalism is about education, I believe. It's continuing to inform people about stuff they need to know to live constructively and productively and successfully. That is channel agnostic. It doesn't matter if that's something that happens in a folded pile of papers that gets dropped at your driveway every day. It doesn't matter if that's over television or radio or the interweb Twitter book thingy, change in form will always occur. I think if we get all wrapped around the axle about form, we lose sight of the priority is to continue to be good practitioners of this informing role. There is always going to be a need, a demand, uh, a begging in America for people to help the rest of America makes sense of what's going on. We just got to stay good at that. If we stay good at that and then stay agile about how we do that, the future will take care of itself. Well, Scott, we've always been very proud of, of you and, and our alums for representing the school so, you know, so effectively just by the, the quality of the work that you do. And it's been a real big part of my career in my uh, time at the at the school to get to work with such talented students who then become such talented professionals. So thank you again for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with the Scripps Talks audience. Well, and let me also say, Bob, past 20 years, it has been just such a delight to work with you. You are a person of incredible grace and integrity and resilience. And at your heart, you're a teacher. Academia kind of makes cage matches look like Sunday school and the fact that you have been so successful for so long and led the school successfully for so long is not just a tribute I think to your ability uh, it's a it's a tribute to your character and while I'm gonna miss working with you um, I'm gonna just love continuing to be your friend as you and Penny enter this next chapter in your lives whoever is the next director is going to be so much more successful because of the foundation you laid. And I'm really hopeful for the future of Scripps, not because I know who that person may be, and I don't, but I'm hopeful for the future of Scripps because of where you've taken Scripps. And just thank you for what you've done, and congratulations on this next great chapter of your life that you and your wife and your family get to enter. I just wish you all the best for it, man. You just, it's great to have you as a friend. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, you're leaving me speechless. So I think that's a good point to end. Thank you for being on Scripps Talks today. It's been a, a real pleasure. 
and best of luck and and wash your hands stay healthy stay home folks scott melbourne thank you very much <laughs>